All right. Hello. All right. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Did you just get your hair done? I did. Oh. Yes, I know. <laughs> Shout out to the one and only Debbie. Yes. and uh, Debbie all... Louise Brown, the only person who I allow to touch my head. I hadn't done it in a long time. Yeah, I was looking a little rough for a while, <laughs> but uh, understandably, because... There's something happening in the world, but... It's looking good now. Yes. New go. Jersey allowed me to get my hair did, and I gleefully did as soon as I could get an appointment, because she was booked up pretty far. I'll see her tomorrow. Yes. So anyway, who are we? Oh, yes. Welcome to the Family Crime Cast. We are your hosts. I'm Mariah Honaker. And I'm Bob Honaker. And welcome to part two of The Prom Mom. And just quickly, if you are tuning in right now and you haven't listened to part one, stop what you're doing. Go back and listen to part one of the prom mom case. And I'll give a little recap right now, but you'll definitely want to listen to that in order to listen to this episode. So this is part two of the prom mom. And a little recap is that 18-year-old Melissa Drexler, she was going to her high school prom and she casually gave birth in the bathroom stall, then proceeded to throw the baby in the garbage. The baby was found later by staff and people at the prom venue, rushed to the hospital and is pronounced dead at the hospital, where Melissa also got an examination and delivered her afterbirth. She then goes home, and when detectives gather evidence and an autopsy is done by a medical examiner, shout out to Dr. Peacock, to determine the cause of death, he finds that the baby has injuries consistent with strangulation and asphyxiation. Therefore, Melissa Drexler is charged with murder and endangering the welfare of a child. So let's pick up there. Once Melissa is charged with murder... What happens next? Is she immediately arrested? What happens? So complaints were issued for those two charges, murder and endangering the welfare of their child. We notified her attorney that complaints were being processed and informed him that she would have to surrender herself in order to be processed. So she was taken into custody. She was processed. And at the time, there was negotiation as to what amount of bail should be set in regards to her case. A bail amount ultimately was set in uh, the amount of $50,000, and she was released on bail. One thing I'm curious about, and we did not discuss this last episode, is was she questioned at all? Like at the prom, did the police question her when she was at the hospital? Did detectives question her? Was she ever questioned? By law enforcement personnel? No. Um, What had happened was that she was taken to the hospital and she was being treated at the hospital and her parents were notified as to the fact that she was in the hospital and that she had delivered a baby at the prom and her parents notified counsel and once she retained counsel then we no longer could talk to her right smart move by parents and all involved to lawyer up as soon as possible so Uh no statement no statement by law enforcement although if you remember from the previous episode she was questioned by school officials and had made some admissions so certainly those admissions would have been utilized as evidence got it so after that what happens next after she was charged at the time 
there was still in New Jersey the death penalty statute. Every murder had to be considered for the potential of being a death-eligible case. So the death penalty committee met to determine whether or not we would seek the death penalty. And uh, the committee, after a review of the facts and circumstances of this particular homicide, determined and made a recommendation to Prosecutor Kay not to seek the death penalty. And he agreed with that recommendation, and the death penalty was not sought. Regardless of not seeking the death penalty, which I agree with that, I think, you know, in terms of... Well, the fact that we were even considering the death penalty, mm-hmm. which we were mandated by law to do, mm-hmm. received a lot of criticism. Uh, there were defense attorneys from around the country who would be on court TV saying, you know, how could the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office even consider the death penalty? Remember Roy Black, who's a pretty infamous defense attorney, severely criticizing John Kay in our office for... Uh, reviewing it. Uh, Little did he he know that we had to do it. Okay, so you had to do it. So regardless of them not seeking the death penalty, she's still facing a substantial amount of of time in jail. What what is she facing? Well, a murder charge carried with it a mandatory uh, term of incarceration at a minimum of 30 years which could have extended to life in prison. So she was facing 30 years to life. So she would have been in jail for 30 years to life minimum she could get out by the time she's essentially 50 years old. Correct. What happens after you make the decision to not seek the death penalty? At that point, I had to make a decision as who was going to handle the case. And we decided that the best prosecutor to handle this type of case was Elaine Lachaud. Elaine was a senior trial member of our office. She had a great deal of trial experience a lot of homicide cases, and in particular, she had handled these type of cases, a baby death case or or cases before. So we felt confident that she was the right person to not only prepare this case for ultimate trial, but also to best represent the office in in handling this case. And but finally, I think another factor was that she was a mother and she could provide that perspective that certainly none of us could have provided that perspective. And she was articulate and she was uh, forceful and she was a person that we believed would be able to bring this case uh, to trial and obtain a conviction. Well, I like the fact that she was a mom, so... That's pretty cool, you know? Give moms a chance. Moms deserve to handle big, high-profile cases, too. <laughs> yeah, and don't forget, this is 1997, right. 1998. She was a very prominent part of our office. That's awesome. So doing a little research on my end when I was looking up this case, I also found a very similar case going on in the country at the same time. Do you know which one I'm referring to? Yes, I think it was Amy Grossman. Mm-hmm. Amy Grossman and... Brian Peterson. Yes, it was Amy Grossman in the Ryan Peterson case. So that's kind of one very strange, I think, that a very similar baby death case is happening the same time as this prom on case. And that one was also heavily publicized as well. Right. There's two young people from New Jersey who were... What is going on with New Jersey, man? Like, <laughs> don't kill babies. What the fuck? And they were... Uh, friendly in high school. I think they're from Bergen County. And Amy 
Grossman went to the University of Delaware, and Brian Peterson went to Gettysburg College. So they still maintained their relationship, and in fact, were involved uh, sexually with each other. Amy became pregnant, and she concealed her pregnancy, very similar to Melissa Drexler from her family. But in this case, the boyfriend did know. Brian Peterson did know. And she called him when she was experiencing labor pains. He drove from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania to Newark, Delaware. They rented a room at a Comfort Inn in, in Delaware. And she delivered the baby. And the baby was deposited, again, in the trash, in a dumpster. What the heck? I'm just like, what is going through your mind? I don't even understand. And, and they and this was this was in November of 1996, so it was less than a year from the Melissa Drexler case. Wow, that is honestly so crazy to me that people think the only option in life is to just kill your baby. Like there's a lot of other options out there, people. In regards to that, I was also researching that Amy's Law was made up, and it was based off of Amy Grossman from that case. And it's the New Jersey Safe Haven Infant Protection, and it basically allows people to give up unwanted infants without the fear of arrest. You can bring the baby to a hospital, police station, fire station, first aid, anything that's staffed up to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with no questions asked. So, yeah, I mean, this was one of the positive factors that came from not only the Amy Grossman case, but on the heels of the Amy Grossman case, the Melissa Drexler case. So although uh, Amy Grossman's case came first, I believe that the Melissa Drexler case also contributed to the establishment of this law. And again, prosecutors were very, very much advocating that, listen, we did not want to handle these cases and prosecute these cases. There were alternatives that could be utilized by young women facing this situation. They could safely, safe haven law, safely deposit the young child with someone who would take it into, and there would be no criminal charge. They're basically the law is like New Jersey teenagers, stop doing this. Like, please do not kill your child. You can drop it off anywhere you want. Just don't do it. But I remember growing up and always, you know, hearing stories of people dropping off babies at fire stations or police stations, like no questions asked type of thing, and always like wondering where that came from. Right. And I think initially there was some concern that you could be charged with abandoning an infant. But this law made it clear that the baby's interest was paramount and women who did this would not face criminal charges. Yeah, and I also have to say that men need to know this too. Like men need to know that if you're in a relationship and your girlfriend is pregnant, there are options besides, you know, going to the extremes. Like you do not pressure anybody into doing something drop the baby off, you'll find something to do. Like men, I think, need to be held accountable as well for their actions. Well, in the Amy Grossman case, in fact, Brian Peterson was held accountable. He ultimately pled guilty to a manslaughter charge and went to jail for a little over two years And because he helped Mm -hmm. in the disposal of the baby. And so he too, as you mentioned, contributed to this. And certainly anyone who does that would be held accountable under the law. 
All right, so back to the prom mom. After Elaine is assigned the case, you're preparing for trial. Right, so we're gearing up for trial. We know there's a lot of issues out there, and so we begin to marshal our resources. Obviously, we have Dr. Peacock as our key witness who would testify as to the baby being born alive and independent of the mother. But we also utilized evidence of the witnesses who were there that night who would testify as to what they saw, heard. We also had the school officials who conducted their own investigation, and in fact, statements made by Melissa Drexler to the school officials. We'd had the custodians who, in fact, discovered the blood in the ladies' room and the baby in the dumpsters. And then ultimately, we would have had John Lewis testify as well as to what he knew and what he did as a result of eventually finding out that his girlfriend was pregnant and delivered a, an infant child. So all of those were being done in order to prep for trial. Okay, so while you're preparing this, what do the defense prepare for trial? Well, the defense, again, they're preparing for trial as well. And they have a two-pronged attack. Uh, number one, they want to contest the findings of Dr. Peacock. So what they do is they hire one of the top forensic pathologists in the world, Dr. Michael Bodden. Now, Dr. Bodden, he you know worked on the Kennedy assassination, and even most recently, he was used in examination of Jeffrey Epstein in order to determine whether or not there was a homicide in that case. So he's handled high-profile cases. Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> well, I think that's what Dr. Bodden said as well. I think well. he said it was a homicide, right? He did. He did. He said there were evidence of, of uh, manual strangulation. Damn straight there was. It's just... One man who has secrets on the most powerful people in the world. Well, and, What's going to happen? And Dr. Bodden is obviously very respected. I've used him on several occasions. Hey, and, if Dr. Bodden said it, then it happened, people. Yeah. And, well, uh, not in, except for in this case. Well, <laughs> in this case, Dr. Bodden ultimately came to the conclusion that you could not tell. Mm-hmm. So he never really refuted Dr. Peacock's conclusions. But what he said is based on his examinations, you could not tell, which from a defense perspective is just as good as saying that the baby was not born alive because it creates reasonable doubt. So you would have had this high-profiled forensic pathologist testifying, listen, you really can't tell. There was aggressive CPR on the infant. There were school personnel who were trying to revive the infant. Uh, there were hospital personnel that were trying to revive this I- infant. That aggressive CPR could have contributed to providing either air to the lungs or air in the intestines or some other factor which would have negated the fact that the baby was born alive. And therefore, doubt is created. And So if doubt is created baby. as to whether or not the baby was born alive, then it would be a not guilty verdict. And the second prong in this case was an examination of Melissa Drexler's mental health. And so the defense retained, again, one of the top forensic psychiatrists in the world, Dr. Robert Sadoff, who, again, I used as a prosecutor because he was one of the best. And he he was coming to the conclusion that you had to examine Melissa Drexler's mental state at the time that she delivered the baby and 
disposed of the baby. And in any criminal case, you need both a mental element and a physical element. So we all know that she took the baby out of the toilet and she put it in the trash. But what was her intent? So his main thrust was to establish that she did not have the ability to purposely or knowingly commit murder, which would have negated the murder charge and would have ultimately either have her found not guilty or convicted of some lesser charge. Hmm. Okay. Well, therefore, this case actually never does go to trial. It does not. Um, Although I would have loved some of that trial tea, you know, just that, that good trial stuff selfishly, it does not go to trial. It does not go to trial. There was a great deal of give and take in this case. Uh, Elaine, hard-driving, aggressive prosecutor, put together a great case. The defense, again, doing whatever they could to defend Melissa Drexler, put together a good case. Although they had hired these very high-profiled experts, there was a downside to their case. There was a risk because they were facing a murder charge. And in a jury trial, you never know what could happen. They may very well have come back, the fence feared, with the verdict of murder. But there was a downside for us as well. I mean, with these very, very good experts, because all you have to do is create a reasonable doubt and have one juror believe that a person is not guilty, and that would either result in a hung jury or an acquittal. So what was the, I guess, negotiations? I feel like that's a weird term to use when it comes to deciding somebody's life, but what were the negotiations of the plea deal? Obviously, we had the murder charge for which she was indicted. And, you know, our original position was that she should face a murder charge. So we weren't going to come off a serious charge. Uh, Manslaughter, we thought, was too light because there was... a potential for anywhere from five to ten years. So ultimately we came to an offer of aggravated manslaughter with a 15-year term of imprisonment. And at first the defense wasn't going to accept it. But as we drew closer to trial and they saw that we were not going to back off and that was our last and final offer, they ultimately came and accepted that plea. Okay, so they accept the plea So now what happens after the defendant, or just Melissa Drexler in this case, what happens after she accepts that plea? Well, after she accepts that plea, then we advise the judge, Judge Ricciardi in this case, that we've reached a resolution. Because, you know, we're setting dates for trial now. We're getting close to to setting a date for a trial. And Judge Ricciardi then sets down a plea date in August of 1998. So well over a year after the incident happened, Melissa Drexler finally gets into a courtroom and enters a guilty plea. And you can just imagine the immediate attention that that particular court proceeding brought. Everybody and anybody who was in the media was there to watch Melissa Drexler enter that guilty plea. So when she enters the guilty plea, she gives a statement. Is that part of the deal? Like, is that something you have to do? Yes, you have to allocute, which basically says you have to tell the court what you did. In order to plead guilty, 
you have to let the court know under oath exactly what you did. And in this case, she was pleading to aggravated manslaughter. And aggravated manslaughter is the reckless killing of someone manifesting an extreme indifference to human life. So if you have a manslaughter charge, it's simply the reckless killing. So for example, if I take a gun and I shoot it in the air and a bullet comes down and hits somebody, you know, I never really intended to kill anybody, but doing that is manslaughter. But if you do something that manifests an extreme indifference to human life, then it rises to the level of aggravated manslaughter, which is a much more serious crime. All right, I'm going to read Melissa's statement that she gave when pleading guilty. I knew I was pregnant. I concealed the pregnancy from everyone. On the morning of the prom, my water broke. While I was in the car on the way to the prom, I began to have cramps. I went to the prom and I went into the bathroom and delivered the baby. The baby was born alive. I knowingly took the baby out of the toilet and wrapped a series of garbage bags around the baby. Then I placed the baby in another garbage bag, knotted it and closed it and threw it into the trash can. I was aware of what I was doing at the time when I placed the baby in the bag, and I was further aware that what I did would most certainly result in the death of the baby. So that statement hits all of the elements of the crime of aggravated manslaughter in that she admits that she caused the death of the infant. She did it under circumstances that manifest the extreme indifference to human life. The baby was born alive. I wrapped it in a series of plastic bags, put it in another plastic bag, knotted it, and then put it in the trash. So crazy. All of that was quite chilling. Although she read that statement in a very childlike manner in in court people were got the impression that you know she did this horrible thing but there was also something that was there that may have been involved with either her emotional or mental state at the time that it happened so she seemed like and i do remember seeing some videos from it and the court tv episode with you on it and there's this one scene where she just says i'm sorry okay and it's just like really a weird thing to say you know that's like if I pushed my little brother and there and then you were like say sorry and I'm like I'm sorry okay to the judge and it was just so odd yeah there was under the circumstances yeah I I mean listen I agree uh there were circumstances of that plea that caused people to kind of shake their heads but she fully admitted as to what she did and why she should be held accountable. One thing I really wish that I just like knew was about the umbilical cord and the sanitary napkin and how she cut that. She did that, right? Like that was how she cut it? Yeah, I mean- Did like the evidence show that? Because that is just a crazy thing to even think of. You're like, what? what's sharp here? And then you like rip off the sanitary napkin thing and slice, that's so nuts. Right, so I mean, yeah, ultimately, That's how we would have presented evidence as to how the umbilical cord was cut. And we were confident that that is the way it happened. I just still can't get over that part. All right. So she pleads guilty. Then there's a sentencing day that comes. So on the sentencing day, what was that like? Judge Rashardi, who took the plea, set the matter down for sentencing in October of 1998. And on sentencing day... The courtroom was packed with media from all over the country and the world, for that matter. And 
Elaine Lachaud was there to represent state of New Jersey for sentencing. Steve Seacare, who, you know, as I mentioned before, is a great attorney, was there to argue in defense of her and mitigate, try to mitigate the sentence. Now, this was a negotiated plea, and we were asking for 15 years. So under the plea agreement, that was the maximum sentence that could be imposed. Steve Seacare was asking for less than that, and Elaine Lachaud argued quite eloquently and forcefully why that 15-year sentence should be imposed. But ultimately, the sentence was left up to Judge Rashardi. So I want to read a piece that I find pretty compelling by Judge Rashardi. He was a great judge. Yeah. He swore me in oh, wow. as, uh, as an assistant prosecutor in 1982. He was the judge who swore me in. But he was a former prosecutor, wonderful judge, great judge, and just a great human being. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years later, but he did what I would consider a very important role in being the judge in this case. All right, so I'm going to read a little piece from his statement at her, at Melissa Drexler's sentencing. He said, what motivates a mother to do something like this, I leave to the experts to debate. But the law is concerned that a very precious, helpless life has been taken. The taking of every life demands accountability. The victim here, only minutes old, had as much as a right to live as any of us. Forgiveness should never displace responsibility, and compassion should not displace accountability. Pretty, pretty powerful words. Very powerful words. It's, you know, I'm getting chills, you know, mm-hmm. just sitting here listening to, and thinking of Judge Rashardi because he meant every single word that he said that day it's heartbreaking in all in all facets of it it's you know you have this baby who barely got a chance and you have melissa who didn't think she had any other option and and took this life of her own child and now she's sitting there waiting to be sentenced for a long long time so what did he ultimately sentence her? So Judge Rashardi sentenced her to the full 15 years that was outlined in the plea agreement. And everyone realized that just because of a quirk of the law, because this incident occurred three days before a new law was to go into effect, which would have mandated that a sentence of that magnitude would have required 85% of parole and eligibility. So it would have been a 12-year time in jail. Minimum. Minimum. But because that law had not gone into effect, the parole eligibility for that sentence was a little less than three years. Obviously, that our position would be heard when she would be eligible for parole, and it would be up to the parole board to determine when she'd be released. But Judge Rashardi sentenced her to the full 15 years, and she was let out of the courtroom in handcuffs in custody to begin that sentence. Wow, and how much time did she ultimately serve? She ultimately served, I believe, 37 months, so three years and a month. She is really lucky that that law passed a few days after (laughs) her sentencing. Yeah, I mean, she did get the benefit of not having that law in place, but still she served a little more than she was required to do under the parole statute. So the parole board did take into consideration some of the arguments that we had that she should maybe stay in longer than the two years and 10 months or whatever it was that she would have been first eligible. How was her sentencing and release received by the media? Well, (laughs) 
her when she was sentenced uh, to 15 years, and she w- was told that she'd be eligible for parole in a little less than three. Our office was criticized f- f- from both angles. Mm-hmm. Number one, we were criticized because the sentence was too light, that she should go to jail for the rest of her life for what she did. Other people, particularly even Amy Grossman's attorney uh, and other defense attorneys, thought that we were too harsh, that uh, in other countries, infanticide was not treated like it is in America, and we should have not even sent her to prison. So what I think, I think it was a very fair resolution and a very fair sentence based on all of the circumstances, uniquely looking at this case through the facts and circumstances of what happened in this case, and not being influenced Mm -hmm. by one side who's saying that you should do this, or one side saying you should do that, but what you believe the law and justice was deserved in this case. And we think that the fact that we were criticized for both sides that we were doing our job. It was a job. good thing. Yeah, I, I do sort of agree, you know. I mean, 15 years and, and serving three, and of course it's a horrible, horrible crime, but uh, I, do, I do think it was fair. I do. At the end of the day, I do think it was fair. And I only hope that during that time, Melissa could see what she did and reflect on that and and learn from that because I fully, fully believe in, in people learning from their mistakes and, and getting a second chance once once they've been in, incarcerated. I, I really do believe that. So, you know, I, I just hope that she's doing that, doing exactly that. And you know what's amazing, Mariah, is the fact that 23 years later, mm-hmm. this case still resonates with the public. The prom mom case still has implications and people still have feelings and... It was on a Family Guy episode, for Christ's sake. There's a Family Guy episode referring to the prom mom. Yeah, and people still have hard opinions right. about this case. True, true. In, 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 in so many years later. So right. it's been a lasting case. Mm-hmm. It's been uh, a tragic case, of you, as you said. We still are talking about it today. Yeah, and I think people will be talking about it for a really long time, the prom mom. I mean, I mean, if it's not just the name alone that makes it right, so exactly. sensational. So, so, listen, you know, maybe we'll have a little more to talk about the prom mom case. I think we might. We might have a little bit more to talk about, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, um, we might have a special guest. <laughs> we just can't stop talking about it, you guys. Yeah. We just can't help ourselves. But I think our, our listeners, if we pull this off, will be very excited about it. Yeah, it could uh, be a fun little bonus episode, so we'll keep you posted. Stay tuned. Thank you so much for tuning into the Family Crycast and our second part episode on the prom mom dad it's been really fun talking to you about this case i've been fascinated (laughs) clearly since i was six years old i've just wanted to know i'm surprised you didn't read that article i know i should no i framed it and it's i'm actually getting a tattoo no i'm just Uh, kidding um uh, but yeah thanks dad for for talking us through this i love you right i love you too dad